Welcome, everyone. My first instinct is to invite everybody to move closer because it's like sitting at the feet of a great speaker or storyteller. So if you are so inclined, um, come up a little bit. That would be great. My name is Anne Hostetler. I am a professor emerita of English here, which means that I retired recently. But I have stayed around to run this Mennonites writing conference that um, we are having this weekend. And Sophia Samatar comes to us courtesy of that conference. And I especially wanted her to speak at a convocation so that students would have a chance um, to hear her. Before I get into her accomplishments, I'm going to tell you some details that might be more interesting to you as students, because sometimes it's hard to know how do you get from here to there. Sophia is a 1994 graduate of Goshen College, and she went afterwards to work on a master's in African literatures at the University of Wisconsin. She met her husband, Keith Miller, also a GC grad at Goshen, and he is a missionary kid. So between the two of them, they had a hankering to um, go um, and do some service in other parts of the world. So after she finished her master's, they went to South Sudan. Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember you telling me that in South Sudan there was a political crisis, and they had a curfew at 6 p.m. at night, no wireless, no entertainment, nothing to do. So she and her husband started writing fiction for entertainment. They would read it to each other and so forth. So it's amazing what you can do with a little deprivation and no electronics, you know. So you might consider that also um, something to think about in your future. They spent three years in the South Sudan, and then uh, they went to Egypt for six years, where they also had two children. When they came back to the U.S., um, uh, probably um, to bring their family back um, home here, um, although I didn't check that detail. Um, Sophia finished um, her PhD at the University of Wisconsin. Um, she came to, and she also published um, several works of speculative fiction that she had begun on her service, and um, they won awards. So that was pretty exciting. Um, and she's still writing amazing stuff. In 2016, she came to Goshen as our writing workshop instructor, and the students were so taken with her that they begged us to hire her. But we couldn't quite like come up with the right package. But anyway, we're very glad to have her back again. So here's the official famous person introduction. The author of five books, most recently the memoir, The White Mosque, which tells the story of her trip to Uzbekistan to research a group of Mennonites who followed a charismatic preacher to Central Asia in the 19th century. Her first novel, the epic fantasy, A Stranger in Alondria, won the 2014 William L. Crawford Fantasy Award, the British Fantasy Award, and the um, World Fantasy Award for Best Novel. That's kind of a, like a hard thing to follow when your first book gets all that stuff. It was included in Time Magazine's list of the 100 best fantasy books of all time and Esquire Magazine's list of the fifth best, 50 best fantasy books of all time. Samatar also received the 2014 Astounding Award for Best New Writer. A second novel, The Winged Histories, completed the Alondria duology and was followed by the short story collection Tender, a World Fantasy Award finalist. Sophia's gender-bending book, Monster Portraits, 
a collaboration with her brother, the artist Del Samatar, was a finalist for the Italo Calvino Prize and one of NPR's best books of 2018. Sophia lives in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and teaches African literature, Arabic literature, and speculative fiction at James Madison University. Whenever I have the opportunity to hear Sophia Samatar speak, I know I'm going to go on an adventure, to travel where I've never been before and to see things not only through the lens of her blended Somali Mennonite heritage, but through the prism of a gifted, nuanced intelligence in lithe and silken prose. We're gonna to go to about 10.40 and then I'm going to dismiss people who have other obligations, but Sophia would love to have some conversation with you, so we'll have some Q&A after that. And then there will be a book signing down the hall at 11 o'clock. If you're leaving at 10.40 and wanna buy your book early, you can go down there and do it. Fables has an incredible book display for us and you don't have to have paid for the conference to buy books from them. We're hoping they sell a lot of books, so they will do this for us again sometime. All right, thank you. Without further ado, Sophia. Samatar. All right, good morning, everyone. Um, how are you hearing me? Can you hear me okay? Okay, great. Um, it is wonderful to be here. This is really um, tremendous for me to come back to wonderful Goshen College, my alma mater, um, and share with you this morning. So thank you very much to the organizers of the Mennonites Writing Conference for making this happen. And thank you to um, Fearless, Seth, and Sage in the technical area who helped me to get everything set up here. Uh, and of course, thank you to all of you for being here this morning. Um, so I am going to um, talk about this book. It's funny because the last time I was on this stage, I was a student here and I was singing a song that I made myself in a poetry workshop. Lucky for you, that is not on the program today. <laughs> Instead, that was the last thing that I did on this stage. Instead, uh, I'm going to talk about this book, The White Mosque. Um, up there is how it looks with the cover on. This one I took the cover off because I was scared that I was going to rip it. Um, so this book um, is based on a trip that I took in 2016. In 2016, I went on a Mennonite heritage tour of Uzbekistan. One more time, a Mennonite heritage tour of Uzbekistan. And I went because I had become fascinated by this history, by this story of a group of Mennonites who left southern Russia, what's now Ukraine, and they traveled to Central Asia, to what's now Uzbekistan, in the 1880s. And this was a story that, when I came across it, I just found very bizarre and amazing. I'd never heard it before. <clears throat> it was very surprising to me. And there are some personal reasons that I got really interested in that story, which will be revealed a little bit later as I'm talking. Um, but I want to start by just setting the scene. So the book is about a trip to Uzbekistan, and the opening scene is uh, where I have landed. I'm in Tashkent 
and I'm about to start this, um, this journey. And you will see, along with this, some um, very amateur photos. This is how the book opens. Begin with the glow, the faint beam of a half-forgotten history. In this darkened hotel room, a trace of ochre outlines the curtains. Push them aside, and a fawn-colored radiance blooms against my arms, revealing the city below, the dust and juniper trees, the loops of traffic. The light seems to flow from the streets as much as the sky, a tint in the air, less a brightness than a universal softening of the atmosphere. It appears to have no single source. It arrives everywhere at once, from all the ends of the earth, from the future and the past. Rumpled sheets, silky patterned walls, a decorative chair in the corner, rigid and remote like a lady in waiting. I've traveled before as a tourist, a student, a volunteer English teacher, but never for research, never as a pilgrim. Outside, a bus called Golden Dragon, tree trunks painted white, the heat of June, and the vastness of Tashkent, its miles of tended parks, the giant mosques that seem akin to the lonely Soviet structures, buildings marooned in the sky, much taller than the trees. The larger everything is, the smaller I feel, the more I sense the glow. My insignificance brings me close to stray, discarded things, to the story that brought me here, to this blade of grass I pluck by the statue of Amir Timur, the conqueror, guarded by angels, born with his fists full of blood. So that's how it opens. I'm in Uzbekistan. We don't know why. Uh, I'm going to read you another section that explains why I wound up going on this journey. And um, very important to this next part are, first of all, a photograph. Um, this is a photograph that I saw that sparked my interest in this history. This is a picture of um, the center of the Mennonite village. In, uh, at the time, it was the Khanate of Kiva. It's now Uzbekistan in Central Asia. And this photograph was taken in 1932 by a Swiss traveler who went to the area. And, and it really just captured my imagination. Um, so I'm going to read the next section. And in this next part, um, two themes of the book that are very important emerge. And one of them is synthesis, and the other is accident. So listen for synthesis and accident. Synthesis, bringing things together, um, drawing things together, blending, making things fit. And then accident, just the randomness of things, things that happen completely unplanned. Both of those are important in this section, um, which is called Beautiful Error. What brought me here? In a way, I've arrived by accident. I'm haunted by a little piece of history, 
The story of a small, hardy, stubborn group of people who traveled here more than a hundred years ago. I am haunted by a photograph of their church, blanched with whitewash, standing among the poplars of an arid village square. When I first saw it, I imagined its thick walls were made of crystal, that its surface would taste of salt, and that it could contain more than was physically possible, like a word. Because I saw this church in a photograph, I felt I could hold it in my hand. Because the photograph was a century old, I felt I was holding my century, the one in which I was born, the 20th century. Because the church was located in Central Asia, in what's now Uzbekistan, a place I had never been and of which I knew practically nothing, I felt it was very foreign. Because the church was a Mennonite church, belonging to my own denomination, the faith tradition of my mother's family, I felt it was very close. To be very close to the very foreign is one definition of haunting. As the most prominent landmark of the village where it stood, the church in the photograph gave the place its name, Akhmachet, the White Mosque. To the local population, largely Muslim, the church was a white mosque. Beautiful error, radiant mistake. Whether one is Christian or Muslim or neither, churches and mosques form nodes of powerful feeling. Passions cluster about them. Some perceive them as violently opposed, charged in such a way that they must repel one another. Others would place them together as representatives of the same monotheistic, extremist, world-conquering impulse. But whether you see the forces these places emit as wildly different in character, generating worldviews that can never touch, or whether you see them as unified at a deep level, amplifying one another in a sizzling sibling rivalry, or whether your opinion partakes of both notions, I'm in this electrical storm. My mother's family are Swiss-German Mennonites, my father's Somali Muslims. I stand amid this lightning, which here in the 21st century only seems to be growing more intense. And so I wished to go inside the church that was a mosque, its simplicity, its almost blinding pallor. The church crumbled decades ago. It no longer exists. A pilgrimage then to error, to ghosts, to the accidental, to the glow. So that's the section that reveals the reason that I became so obsessed with this story, which was that I come from a family that is Mennonite on one side and Muslim on the other. And here's this story about a meeting, an early encounter between Mennonites and Muslims in Central Asia, um, which for, to, to all accounts was a positive relationship. So that is what really gripped my imagination. Now, when I started looking into the story, the story itself has many other very fascinating aspects. Um, among them, the fact that 
the reason these people went to Central Asia is because they believed um, that Christ was about to return and that he would arrive uh, in Central Asia to meet them. There were a number of people who held this view. Um, one of them, the best known of them, who gained increasing power in that community was a very charismatic preacher named Klaus Epp Jr. And he predicted that Christ would return to this place in Central Asia on March 8, 1889. So these folks got the wagons and all the kids and they had a two-year journey and went through incredible struggles um, to come to this place. And then, of course, it didn't happen and it was a great disappointment to them. Um, but what's fascinating to me about this story is the fact that they stayed there and that is the, you know, the going there is kind of the accidental part. That's really the accident. Things didn't turn out the way they thought they would. Um, but it's the synthesis part that really interests me. I wanted to know how did they make it work? How did they synthesize their experience with the, the place where they were? And, um, you know, the source of this in some ways, um, for me, the source of my interest in this is something uh, that I've grown up with, which will be familiar to some people here, uh, which is a kind of outsider feeling, a feeling of being an outsider at home. And I'm going to read a part of the book that, that addresses that. So this is from the second chapter. And at this point, I'm on the tour. I'm with a, a whole group of people, um, almost all Mennonites who are going on this tour of Uzbekistan. You'll meet, I'll mention a couple of names. There's somebody named Arnie, there's somebody named Diane. All the people's names have been changed. That's not their real names. Um, and um, this scene opens where we are at a restaurant. In the evening, dinner in a Kyrgyz yurt, a broad tent covered with felt. We are on the border of the Hunger Steppe, an area devoted to farming, though it was barren when the Mennonite travelers came this way, inhabited only by nomads. Slender struts radiate from the domed center of the yurt, where the electric light spreads its branches its rays reflected in our flat bowls of beshbarmak, described to us as typical Kyrgyz food. Beshbarmak means five fingers, because that's what you're supposed to eat it with. We use spoons. Squares of pasta and strips of meat glisten in the broth, a liquid so clear and shallow, it doesn't read to us as soup. It's as if someone's overturned half a glass of water into every plate. I try to stand up for the typical Kyrgyz fare, arguing that with its bland flavor, easily digestible noodles, and nourishing scraps of meat, beshbarmak is probably a great comfort food, exactly what you'd want if you were in bed with a cold. Arnie gives me a wry look from under his white eyebrows. If you're miserable anyway, he agrees, you might as well have some. But we eat heartily of the five fingers, introducing ourselves, swapping histories with the interest of people brought together by an offbeat enthusiasm. Our decision to join this peculiar tour creates an instant trust. 
And there is, as well, in this brightly colored cocoon on the edge of the step, the inevitable unfolding of a deeply familiar practice, a form of inquiry known as the Mennonite game. In this game, two strangers trade the names of their hometowns, parents, in-laws, churches, and schools until they find a connection between them. They'll settle for having taught or worked with each other's relatives, but the highest goal is to find out they're related. Of course, many cultures play some form of this game. The intricacies of the Somali game, played by people who have memorized their paternal lineage going back 10 generations or more, make the Mennonite game look simple. Though the Mennonite version is full of unexpected twists, as it's played by a smaller group with a higher degree of inbreeding. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. It's true. <laughs> Diane, who will be my roommate on the trip, smiles as the table goes through several rounds of the native sport. Her mother was Greek Catholic, but her father's family has been Mennonite since the 17th century. She is the fourth cousin three times removed of Klaus Epp, Jr. Exchanges of names like playing cards, the significance of the name Epp turned over suddenly, heavy as a spade. And then there's my samatar, glitteringly revealed at one end of the table, an ornate and fanciful queen from a different deck. I'm used to the effect of this name in churches and Mennonite gatherings, where, in combination with my Somali features, it suggests I'm a new or potential convert to the faith, or perhaps a visitor from one of our church offices abroad. I'm greeted with hesitant smiles until I play my hidden cards, my husband's miller, or better, that magic phrase, my mother was a glick. The Germanic click of the name, so neat and homely on the tongue, opens the latch. All hesitation dissolves in warmth, surprise, and love. They look at me in a completely different way. I'm in. I win. It takes Arnie ten seconds to figure out he knows my uncle. <laughs> Mennonite names, the ones I know so well, they speak to me instantly, but they don't know me. I have to work my way into their fabric every time. That sonorous material, densely wadded like a quilt, in which I wrap myself, achy yet comfortable, like a sick child. So that's a scene that kind of taps into this, what I'm calling this outsider feeling that sparks the search for synthesis. Because synthesis is about making things fit, right? It's about making the pieces fit together. Um, and so if you feel like you don't fit, um, then there's, there's you know, uh, that, that can be an impulse that grows out of not fitting, is this desire to kind of make things fit together. And that is what, um, that's what sparks the journey of the White Mosque. Um, and it's something that, you know, I've, I've, um, I have experienced my whole life, which has been a very Mennonite life, 
I went to a Mennonite high school. I went to a Mennonite college. I worked with Mennonite Central Committee for nine years. And so I have had this experience over and over of explaining to people, like, no, I'm you. I'm you. I'm not somebody else. I'm you. We're the same. Um, when I worked in, uh, you know, I spent a, a long time in Egypt, um, six years with, with MCC in Egypt, and we would often have, you know, people who came from um, Mennonite churches or other groups in, um, in North America coming from the U.S. or Canada to speak to us, or we'd have MCC retreats, and, and every time or, you know, very often I had the common experience of these people who had arrived, being, you know, seeing me and being like, now, who's that? Because everybody else, we're all MCC volunteers, but everybody else is white, and we're in Egypt. And so the assumption was like, maybe this is a, like a, a, an Egyptian staff person, or like, do you work in the office? Or, or like, wow, your English is really good. And I'm like, right? <laughs> because my English is amazing. And, um, you know, so this is a really common experience of always having to explain and trying to fit and trying to work my way in. And so um, learning about this story um, just, just captivated my attention and trying to think, how did these people fit? How did they make themselves fit? And in thinking about um, synthesis, and accident. So synthesis is deliberate. Synthesis is something you're trying to do. Accident is what's outside of your control. Accident is the wild card. It's, it's what's random. And um, there are many different ways to look at the story of these Mennonites um, that went to Central Asia. Uh, one of them, and the, the most common way of seeing this story for a long time, and I think the reason it's not better known and the reason it was so long before I ever heard of it, um, is that it was considered something that was embarrassing, you know, because these people had made a mistake and they had, you know, followed this preacher who told them these things. It turned out not to be true. And, and so the story was kind of almost repressed or not talked about that much. Um, but I... I see that story in a completely different way. To me, the important thing is not the accident. It's not, you know, what happened to happen and what happened to go wrong, but it's, it's the fact that they took these pieces of this crash that they didn't expect and they made something with it and they made a life with it and they, and they made a village in, in this place, which was there for 50 years until they were deported by the Bolsheviks. So that was kind of a sad end to that story. But, but it was uh, an amazing moment in history and one that I think we should remember. So um, I am going to read one more section and then um, the folks that have to go somewhere can go, and I do hope that you know some of you will stay. We have a little bit of time for um, for Q and A and and to have some conversation together. So the section I'm going to end with is actually the um, it's the beginning of the journey. So this is just when we're now um, leaving the hotel and setting out on this journey. Um, and the section is called Shachrisabs. And Shachrisabs is the name of the place that the Mennonites thought they were going uh, when they started on their journey. That was their goal. That was where they wanted to go. They never got there, um, but that was, their, that was their intent. And in this section, you will also hear uh, 
you'll meet two of our tour leaders on the group, an American Mennonite historian who goes by the name of Frank in the book. So you can have a fun guessing game to see if some of you will be like, do I know who that is? Um, but in the book, he's called Frank. Um, and also an Uzbek historian who goes by the name of Khalid in the book. Shahrisabs. Drag my suitcase along the corridor. Bounce it down the single step to the courtyard into a pallid morning that smells of leaves and exhaust. Outside the gate, the golden dragon, our bus, waits, chugging by the curb. There's the gentle humidity of gardens being watered, the excitement of a journey. One of the drivers takes my suitcase and shoves it snugly into the compartment under the bus. We're leaving today, southeast toward Samarkand, the first leg of a journey that will take us ever farther east till we reach Khiva, where the Mennonite travelers settled. I choose a seat, arrange my backpack, take out a sheaf of notes. We will spend so much time on the Golden Dragon, which now pulls into the traffic with an easy shouldering movement and sets off along the tree-lined boulevard. The Mennonite travelers needed two years for their journey. We've got two weeks. The shadows of passing branches flicker over my notes. I'm reading about the city of Shahrisabs, the birthplace of Timur, known in the West as Tamerlane, the original goal of Klaus Epp Jr. and his followers. The tour is designed to make the most of time, even time on the bus. There's a microphone up front. Our guides will talk to us as we ride, either Khalid or the American historian, Frank, who now clears his throat to lead us in the daily devotion. Each morning of our trek will begin with scripture. Frank can't stand up straight on the bus. He's too tall, he bends, he braces himself on the back of a seat. The day begins with the crackling mic, his energetic figure swaying along with the bus, his kind eyes behind his glasses. He has the tweedy charm of professors I remember from college. The close-cropped beard, not at all the broad whiskers of a Mennonite patriarch in a stock photo, but a beard that gestures modestly toward the past, as if to say, far be it from me to adopt the grand proportions of the beards of my fathers, and yet, forgive me, I can't leave this face quite naked. <laughs> it's the kind of beard my husband has, the kind preferred by most of the Mennonite men I know. Frank speaks to us of migration, of loss, of Babylon, of exile. He links our trip to the great trek that preceded ours, and then to even earlier biblical journeys, Paul and Silas, the Christ child in Egypt. Abraham, he says, was a wandering Aramean. I hear the words wrong, a wandering error man. <laughs> the trees grow thinner as we leave Tashkent. Trucks roar past us, piled with bales of hay, I read of Shahrisabs, which the Mennonite travelers called Sharisabs, where they intended to go when they started out from Russia. 
This was the site selected by Klaus Epp Jr. in his prophecies, the place of refuge where Christ would soon return. Valley of the Carrots, they thought it meant, but this is a mistranslation. Shachrisabs means green town. They meant to go there, to this mistranslated valley, but they were thrown off course toward Hiva, error upon error, mistakes of language, direction, purpose, plan, a formidable misreading of the world. Shachrisabs, that missed destination, will not be part of my journey. It remains imagined, casting its green aura through my notes, a city that lies approximately 80 kilometers south of Samarkand. Some translators call it the Emerald City. Nearly 3,000 years old, it was once known as Kesh, which means heart-pleasing. It has sometimes been identified with the lost city of Nautica, the site of a famous Persian horse race where Alexander the Great replaced his exhausted horses. I dream of the language of ancient Shahrisabs, that clement place. I read that slavery was never legal there, even at the height of the Silk Road trade. The mountains around the city glimmered with porcelain snow, reported the traveling monk Tsuanzang, and the gates were reinforced with iron and hung with bells. The climate was warm and damp. Epidemics prevailed. During the spring rains, priests retired for their rain rest to avoid disease. The appearance of the people was simple and rustic. Their language had 25 letters. By combining these, they could describe everything around them. Imagine it's possible to speak of wholeness. Dream of a language that does not shatter. Khalid, seated across the aisle from me, points out an orchard like a row of verdant flames. We are traveling through the region that produced the first apple. According to our poets, says Khalid, this is the Garden of Eden. Thank you, everyone. If you've got to go, go. If you can stay, stay.